American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life when the words all come down like blues on Tuesdays come down. Welcome to episode 114. We'll just insert it later. Oh, I will insert it later. Stop it. You know what I mean? Uh, of American Timelines. This is the podcast by History for Jerks that brings you history for you, the jerk, the jerk listener. Okay. You've do- you've made a good step so far. You've admitted that you're a jerk and you want to brush up on your history. So thank you for being here. It was big of you to admit that you're a jerk and that you want to subscribe to History for Jerks podcast, American Timelines. All right. I'm Amy. Nope. That's Joe and I'm Amy. Oh, you always got to be Amy. Jeez. Today we're going to talk about 1969. 69, dude. Yeah, we're in a new uh, year. We're coming towards the end of season four, which feels like we've been in season four for 10 seasons. Yes. Um, But yeah, we're finally in 1969, the last year of the 60s, if you will. And I'm going to say 69 a lot. I figured that. You probably will, too, knowing you. Mm. Mm. You're kind of childish. You childish? Yeah. yeah. Kind of immature is what I would say. Oh, all right. That's how I'd describe you. All right. What's first? Well, first, as we do when we hit a new year. Yes. We got a bunch of shit that doesn't really fit in years, but it's just like milestones of 1969. Okay? I'm going to share with you. Okay. Randolph Smith and Kenneth House patented the battery-powered smoke detector in 1969. Oh. So a lot less fires. Good. Remember before that, everybody just burned. Yeah. I mean. Everything just burned. Yeah. So that was, that's kind of late. Everybody can have a smoke detector now. I wonder if they had plug-in smoke detectors the thing, so before that. I don't know. Well, maybe they were all electric or something, but. Battery power smoke but detectors, but that wouldn't make sense because a lot of fires are electrical. So plug-in smoke detectors. I mean, think work. about it. Like we didn't even have smoke detectors, and everybody smoked in bed all the time. I know, like, <laughs> and everything was made of wood. Yeah, if you look at old movies, like everybody's always smoking in bed. Yep. No wonder there was all these fires. Yeah. Uh, James Brown in 1969 released five different songs about popcorn. <laughs> what? Willie Nelson has been playing the same guitar named Trigger since 1969. He even. Uh, he's even worn a giant hole in it. That's when he oh, started playing wow. Trigger. The term headbanging was first coined during Led Zeppelin's 1969 tour of oh, the U.S. Oh, really? That's where headbanging came from. Okay. Um, uh, Donald and Doris Fisher opened their clo- clothing store, The Gap, in San Francisco oh, yeah. in 1969. Uh, the, uh, the top... TV shows in 1969, where Roan and Martin's Laugh-In was number one on NBC. Mm-hmm. Number two was Gunsmoke on CBS. Yep. Three was Bonanza on NBC. Mm-hmm. Four was Mayberry RFD on CBS. And five was Family Affair. Gosh, there's so many, like, like you got the Westerns, and then you got Andy Griffith, yeah, and which th- is, like, old-timey. Those are both on their way. The Westerns and the 
rural. Remember I said they yeah. were they had a push yeah. against rural TV. Yeah. Like that was the end of it. So once that got canceled, they got rid of Beverly Hillbillies Green and Acres Green Acres and, stuff, and all yeah. that shit. It was just like even though they were popular, they just like moved away from it. I guess. Huh. Um, a musician named Jim Sullivan recorded an album called UFO, which featured strange lyrics about leaving his family and being abducted by aliens. And then Sullivan disappeared six years later without a trace. Really? The only piece of evidence being his abandoned car found on a desert road. Ooh, I could have done that story. Yeah, I think it's, it, he was abducted like in the 70s, I think, so you should look that up. I never saw him again. Really? <clears throat> yeah, isn't that weird that he yeah. wrote? Um, there was also a commercially sold adult board game mm-hmm. in 1969 called Chug-A-Lug. Oh. It involved smoking, beer, and marijuana. Did it really? Yeah, the purpose was to win the most alcoholic unanimous cards and penalties involved liquor store runs, removing clothing, or not being allowed to go to the bathroom. That we gotta look on eBay and so we gotta get a they have that. it it's they have it on Amazon. They but do? It's, but it's not of it like it's sold out. Oh there's a couple I found on like on eBay. I think they're like a million dollars. But Ugh. here's a description of the of it from Amazon. That would be fabulous to have. Chug-a-lug is an exciting adult game of skill and fortune for two to six players. Skill. Chug-a-lug tests your drinking skill as well as your ability to cope with unusual and hilarious situations. This is the most intense drinking game you will ever find and has the most insane rules. During the playing of the game, no player may take a drink, go to the bathroom, or light a cigarette unless specifically instructed to during the playing process. If any player deviates from this rule, a penalty of four drinks is levied against that player. Whoa! If a player is smoking and lands on a light-up square, he must light up again and smoke both cigarettes at the same time. Oh, my God! This is in good vintage condition. Oh, no, oh, the, this is the, yeah. this is the description. This is in good vintage condition. The box is faded and has some wear and wear and a couple taped corners, but the game itself appears to have been only lightly played and still has its original 1969 two-pack of Alka-Seltzer. <laughs> it comes with Alka-Seltzer? Yeah, I guess. That's pretty good. Uh, I have my own copy at home and this that we will never sell or actually play, at least not according to the rules. Very hard to find the 1969 edition. Have fun and stay safe. Ships quickly from Santa Cruz. I guess that was on... Well, how much did they want for I it? I can't remember, but that was on eBay or that was on Amazon. You know how Amazon yeah. sells like used stuff uh-huh. sometimes? Yeah. Um, yeah, so we should buy it. Yeah, that's hilarious. I Just reading that description, though... I really wish we had it in college. I like, know. When we would actually we do those it, things. We need to get it for the kids' college. So yeah. Give it to them. <laughs> give it to them. They, hey, you're off to college. <laughs> here, here you go. go. <laughs> here you go. And here's a pack of cigarettes. <laughs> I have a feeling our kids aren't going to be, they're not big partiers like no. us, I don't think. Audrey might be, but Henry's definitely not going to be a partier, I don't think. Yeah, he's he probably won't. He'll probably be a gamer or something. Yeah. You never know. Everybody goes through a party phase a little bit. Well, do they? Maybe they don't. I mean, some people don't question. at all. That's a good question. I was always I mean, you only and I, around other people that were full-blown alcoholics, probably. Yeah, like we were all, partiers. Yeah. Like you and I were both partiers, and then we got together and then continued our party into Chicago. And it got into a big party. Yeah, we just partied all the time. I know. <laughs> we're partiers. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're just partiers. That's what we do. Hey, do you guys party? We party. That's what we do. Although that's code for other things sometimes. Yeah, now it's probably like... Uh, that means like swinging. swinging. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, I think a lot of people are disappointed that you and I haven't swung 
So it's kind of like. I don't think anybody's disappointed about that, honey. No, I just think it's what people expect of us. So I think we need to start getting out there. All right. What's next? It's never too late. We're in our mid. I don't know how we got on this. We're in our mid to late 40s. It's never too late to start swinging. Gross. (laughs) (laughs) Gross. Okay. January 1st, 1969, the number one ranked Ohio State Buckeyes defeated the number two ranked USC Trojans 27 to 16 before a crowd of 102,063. Fans to win college football's Rose Bowl and the recognition by the NCAA as college football's national champion. That same day, North Vietnam released three American prisoners of war to a five-member U.S. Army team at a rice paddy field near South Vietnam's border of Cambodia. A fourth had escaped captivity from the Viet Cong the day before. One of the POW specialists for James Brigham of Ocala, Florida, died less than three weeks later at a Washington hospital after surgery for a brain abscess. Oh, man. I think the guy that escaped was that guy that talked we about, in the talked la- about. Yeah, in the last that um, yeah. uh, was going to be killed anyway. And that same day, Vern Troyer was born. You know that little guy who yes, played mini me. I know, I know. How tall do you think he is, Vern Troyer? I don't know. Two foot eight. Okay. Imagine only being two eight. <laughs> I'm two eight. No. Uh, anyway, yeah, he was born in Sturgis, Michigan. Do you know who Barton McLean is? No. Oh, he died that same day. So Barton McLean was an actor. Might be Vern Schroyer right. reincarnated. Can we move on? January 2nd, 1969 was a Thursday. Mm-hmm. Australian media baron Rupert Murdoch purchased the largest selling British Sunday newspaper, The News of the World, as shareholders of the news voted to accept his bid over that of British book publisher Robert Maxwell. Murdoch would purchase newspapers in the U.S. in the 1970s, notably the New York Post. And enter and and then enter television in the nineteen eighties with the founding of the Fox News yep. Network. It's weird that you can just buy a news network. I know, and then just make it l- lie. Turn it into a propaganda network. Yeah, it's weird that you, you can do that. Mm-hmm. A lot of money in that, I guess. Yeah. And Christy Turlington was also born that day. And January third, nineteen sixty nine, was a Friday. And nothing happened that day, or the fourth, or the fifth. Except there's people born. I'm not going to say it. Even Thank though on the you. fifth, Marilyn Manson was born. I'm not even going to say it. He was born in Canton, Ohio. No, stop. January 6th was a Monday of 1969. Allegheny Airlines Flight 737 crashed on its approach to Bradford, Pennsylvania, killing 11 people on board during a multi-stop flight from Washington, D.C. to Detroit. The accident came less than two weeks after the fatal crash on Christmas Eve of Allegheny Airlines Flight 736 on its way to Bradford as part of the same route killing 20 people. Jeez, I wonder what's going on with that route. That's the same day that Richard Nixon was officially elected president of the United States. Yes. Uh, and Norman Reedus was born, a guy who's in Walking Dead. And that brings us to Tuesday, January 7th, 1969. Yes. And I'm under the impression that my lovely bride, <laughs> who's got it going on, has Stop something it. to share with us. All right. And I'm not only listening because you're beautiful. That's only I'm listening because you're smart. You don't you don't listen. (laughs) Wait a minute. You you don't listen ever. I do find you attractive. All right. I'm gonna talk about the murder of Jane Britton. Oh God, a murder? Jesus. Yes. What is this? A true crime podcast? And I got my information from Mental Floss, Boston twenty five news dot com and Wicca PD uh, Mental Floss, Boston 20, what? Boston what? 25news.com. Boston 25news.com, Mental Floss. Yep. 
All right. Okay. So Jane Britton was born in 1945 in Boston. She Boston. G- she grew up in Needham, Massachusetts, just a few miles outside the city. Needham. In 19- Got him. In 1969, she was studying anthropology at Harvard. And Harvard. living in an apartment complex on University Avenue. All right. The building sits just outside Harvard Square to the west, not far from the Charles River. Uh, I'll buy it. On the morning of January 7th, um, all of the graduate students, fr- the anthropology graduate students. Now, anthropology is uh, insects, correct? No. It's um, studying the people of the past. Well, what's an anthropod? That's a bug, right? Arachnid? What? All okay. Right. Studying anyway, the people of the past. Isn't uh, people of the past history? It's yes, it's the study of people from the past. Jeez, I don't have to fly off the handle. I'm not smart. All right, anthropology graduate students okay. at Harvard University all gathered to take their general exams. Okay, um, but Jane wasn't there. Uh oh. And it wasn't like her to miss a test, especially one that was this important. Her okay. pa- her parents um, was a. Her dad was a Radcliffe College vice president, and a medieval history scholar was her mom. A medieval history scholar was yep, the mom. Was the mom. And Sounds hot. They had raised her to take her education seriously, and she had graduated magna cum laude from Radcliffe College in 1967. Wow, that's impressive. At Harvard, she served as a teaching assistant, and she helped discover the remains of a Neolithic community during an archaeological dig in Iran. Well, that's huge. And that's huge. But wait a minute. That's really a big deal. Yes. But you, did you say that she's graduated cum laude at the same college that her dad is the president of? Radford Radcliffe College. Radcliffe yes. College? Yes. That seems a little fishy to me. Why? Like, nepotism much? What? She went to school there where her dad worked. Oh, her dad's the president and suddenly she's cum laude? All right. Anyway. Me thinks they're doth, doth okay. protest Shush. too much. Shush. <laughs> or something. All right, so her classmate and boyfriend, James Humphreys, called her. He did it. He called her, but she didn't answer. So he set off for her fourth floor apartment at 6 University Road and knocked on her door just about, it was just after noon. Again, there was no answer. And his knocking was loud enough to draw Britain's neighbor and fellow anthropology student Donald Mitchell from his nearby apartment. So he's into bugs, too. And the two men decided to enter Britain's unlocked residence. They, they found her laying face down on her bed in a blue nightgown, her body partially obscured by blankets and a fur coat. A fur coat in bed? That doesn't add up. Mitchell uncovered her head, realized she was caked in blood, and Ugh. promptly called the Cambridge police, who upon arrival asked medical examiner Dr. Arthur McGovern to come to Britain's apartment as well. Uh, Dr. Arthur McGovern, you know, this was all going good till he showed up. McGovern soon confirmed the worst. Britain was dead. It was well. obvious that she had been the victim of a brutal murder, yep. but there was no murder weapon in sight. Hmm. No with candlestick, no rope, no with wrench. no weapon, no eyewitnesses, and the public demanding answers, detectives embarked on an arduous and baffling hunt for the truth, one that would last half a century. Whoa. Fifth, that's 50 years since half a century. That's right. Boom. So Math from, genius from over here. From the shape of the head wounds, the murder weapon had had a point of some oh, sort, okay. but investigators could not determine exactly what had been used. It, I would guess it's one of those. What are those things that they uh, old knights swung around like a, a, a chain and a mace? Yeah, with a spiky ball on it. it was, I think it's that. Um, the police said it was something sharp, like a hatchet or cleaver. Okay, I'm wrong. Um, later, they speculated 
that a four by six inch stone with a pointed end, which was a souvenir Britain had brought home from the f- Iranian dig, Ooh, had been used. Really? It was missing. That's a shame. And Maybe s- it's a cursed Iranian uh, stone maybe. from the old days that mm-hmm. whoever possesses it like gets murdered or something. by it. It was missing, and the state police found no weapon in the apartment. However, they did find a set of fingerprints which matched neither Britain nor anyone else investigators knew of had been in the apartment. Ah, uh, somebody was there. So, the night before her murder... Wait a second. Before we just assume somebody else was there, let's think about this. It's a college town, right? Yes. So, kids change residences every year, if not every two or three years. Right. How many kids were in there? How I many know. fingerprints? Think about how well people really I even know, clean. clean. Any yeah. apartment right now in a college town, you go in there, the there's probably th- hundreds of thousands of people's fingerprints because yeah. there's that many gross people. And think how many, how much dead skin of different people are All in right. everybody's house. You're getting house. a little off track It's here. gross. So the night before the murder. Yeah. Um, murder Br- Eve. Britain, Britain and her boyfriend, Humphreys, joined some classmates for dinner at the Acropolis restaurant and ice skating at Cambridge Common. That sounds like a fun night out. She and Humphreys retired to her apartment for hot cocoa around 10.30 p.m. Man, hot cocoa and, uh, you know. And when Humphreys left an hour later, Britton visited the Mitchells to retrieve her cat, Fuzzy, and enjoy a glass of sherry before returning to her own apartment at around 12.30 a.m. Well, that was nice that the Mitchells were watching her cat, Fuzzy. Though Donald Mitchell and his wife Jill hadn't seen or heard anything suspicious, two other residents had. A neighbor heard noises on Britain's fire escape that night, and someone else reported seeing a six-foot-tall, 170-pound man running in the street below at 1.30 a.m. So if you see a guy running at 1.30 a.m., are you like, eh, that guy's six-foot, 170 pounds. Look at that six-foot, 170-pound guy. Well, no, but you, you know, they, to say, like, how... About how tall did he look from the they window? They were kind of guessing. Like and they were like thin or boned. Or yeah. Like, if you saw me, would you guess I'm 170 pounds? I don't know. They show you pictures, and they say what oh, was the most okay. like. And, and then they, they know can, yeah. who, who weighs what. Yeah. Because I'm definitely not 170 pounds. Right. All right. Um, so... Unfortunately, neither of these two testimonies gave authorities much to investigate, and they couldn't even be certain that the murderer had, in fact, used the fire escape to gain access into Britain's apartment. Okay. They saw no evidence of forced entry, and her front door had been unlocked. Huh. As police continued their inspection of Jane's apartment, Dr. George Katsas autopsied Britain's body at Watson Funeral Home and determined her cause of death to be the result of multiple blunt injuries of the head with fractures of the skull and contusions Ouch. and lacerations of the brain. God, I know that would hurt. It was later confirmed that Britain had also been the victim of sexual assault, mm, and a toxicology report proved that, she, that since the sherry had never entered her bloodstream, she must have died within an hour of having returned to her apartment that night. Oh, shit. That's how they can tell those that, things. That's how you can tell how quick. Um, one thing I would say is that I don't think it, that the door being unlocked is really that big of a deal. Because don't right. you think everybody kept the doors unlocked Probably. in the 60s? Yeah. The, the fact that Britain's door was unlocked caused something of a public outcry because it wasn't the first time that someone had been killed in the building. Oh, well, maybe six you years, would lock it there. Yeah. Just six years earlier, Boston University student Beverly Sammons had been stabbed to death in her apartment by Albert DeSalvo, better known as the Boston Strangler. Oh, we talked about that guy, we did. didn't we? Huh. After Britain's murder... 
The Harvard Crimson reported that the front doors of the littered and dingy building didn't even have locks. And that Britain's apartment door was often left unlocked, not out of negligence, but because it was almost impossible to lock. Oh, no. Broken? Students had allegedly complained about the lousy security in the past, though a university representative denied those claims. So do you think when she picked that apartment, everybody's like, hey, you know, that's where the Boston Strangler murdered somebody. You don't want to go there. And then she was probably like, well, what are the chances of another murder happening? Maybe. And then here it goes. Or murdered. maybe she was like me and she was like, ooh, tell me more. Ooh, I love it. I love true crime. Yeah. And it wasn't even a genre then. Right. Meanwhile, police were considering the possibility that someone from the university had committed the crime. They started questioning members of Harvard's, Harvard's anthropology department, some of Shit. whom were Britain's companions on the dig in Iran during the previous summer. Ooh. Many of Britain's friends could not imagine anyone wanting to kill her, though. She seems sweet. The Cambridge police nonetheless filmed her January 10th funeral service in case someone in attendance had been involved. Oh, and, they, and see if they looked away by their behavior. Yeah, by acting suspicious. Mm-hmm. Did anybody no. seem suspicious? Not that, no. It's weird the same, this murder happened the same day that the trial began in the case of Sirhan Sirhan. Oh, right. For we killing talk about that. Lie detector tests were administered to Humphreys and Mitchells, and the Mitchells, and detectives talked to or attempted to talk to anyone mentioned in her diary and an old phone directory. Yeah. While canvassing the crime scene, police had found traces of red ochre, which is a powder-like clay, and it was sprinkled both on Britain's body and around her apartment. Since red ochre was once used in ancient Persian burial rites, investigators were looking for a suspect likely to have an in-depth knowledge of the subject. Huh. It wasn't the only reason that Jane's former companion seemed like a promising place to start. According to some media reports published in the wake of the murder, there had also been hostility among the nine participants. But as the interrogations failed to produce any viable suspects, investigators were forced to conclude that the media reports had been exaggerated. Probably. Um, Huh. Yeah, they said there wasn't, they didn't, there might, might have been complaints about too much tuna fish, but that was about as far as it too went. Too much tuna fish? I'm going to murder you. I've had enough tuna fish. And you must the, die now. The presence of that red ochre also turned out to be insignificant. I was going to say it's it was probably... later determined it was a residue from one of her paintings that oh, she liked to paint. Oh, okay. So with the bone-dry suspect pool, police focused instead on evidence from the crime scene. Okay. Though they had managed to find traces of semen left behind by the killer during the sexual assault. Gross. The existing technology wasn't advanced enough for them to so use what that you do, DNA to locate a match. You put away the semen and you wait 50 years, right? They for also DNA discovered that a sharp stone, perhaps sharp enough to kill, Britain had received as an archaeological souvenir from the Mitchells had gone missing. Oh, I already said that. Okay. Then just two days after Britain's body was found, Cambridge Chief of Police James F. Reagan announced a blackout on any further news of the investigation until he himself decided to release more information. Yeah, don't put that out because then if somebody knows something... Well, and also there's inaccuracies in the media coverage of the crime. Ah, He wouldn't elaborate, but he did give one last parting update. They had located the sharp stone. Oh, they located it. But again, it's a lamestream media getting it wrong again. Yep. As for any other details, like where they found it, for example, or if it happened to be smeared with blood, yeah. he didn't say. He didn't the say. Pub- the police, I mean, the public was left to assume that the potential murder weapon was yet another dead end. Okay. So in the absence of any official updates, people looked back on Britain's life, both to honor her memory and search for some clue that they might have missed. She was a bright-spirited young woman who rode horses, played the piano, and decorated her apartment walls with drawings of animals. Well, and, made pa- and painted. Like, she's yeah. a very uh, 
interesting, vibrant individual, and I'm upset by she, her passing. She wanted to become an archaeologist. See, I told you. After her graduation. Some considered the many accounts of Britain's all-around winning personality proof that her assailant must have been a complete stranger. The police have a mass of material, and I think it will all lead to the conclusion that no one would want to kill Jane, her friend yeah. Ingrid Kirch said. Ingrid Kirch is on to something here. Others, with however, simply generated the kind of ugly gossip that so often rears its head during tragedies. One popular conspiracy theory suggested that Britain's murder was connected to her alleged involvement in the counterculture movement of the time. What well, was the counterculture movement of the time? Like like the 1969, you know, counterculture. Oh, oh the, the 60s counterculture yes. movement. Like not yeah. like counterculture to the culture that was happening. I don't mm. know what I'm talking about. I don't know. She knew a lot of odd people in Cambridge and <laughs> the hangers-on and acid heads who you would not call young, wholesome Harvard and Radcliffe types, is nah. what an unnamed friend had said. All right. That seems right. But everybody probably knew a bunch of weirdos in the 60s, in 69 especially. Yeah. But time wore on without any news from <coughs> the police department, and eventually even the foundationless rumors petered out. Peter. The murder of Jane Britton became another cold case. Her parents passed away, her mother uh-huh. Ruth in 1978, and her father Jay Boyd in 2002 without knowing the truth about their daughter's tragic death. Wow, her father lived a long time without her mother. Yeah, he did. Huh. Evidence Poor from guy. the case was well preserved, though. Okay, good. Even the semen? Yeah. Good, okay. When We're DNA testing became available to investigators in the late 1980s, yes. they eventually tested the semen left by the killer. Yes. It L- save that semen. Always save the semen, everybody. It did not produce any matches to the profiles of known offenders at the time. Wah, wah, wah. Nor did a 2006 retest. Oh. In the early 2010s, several writers began looking into the case and requesting copies of the investigatory records. Investigatory then, records requests? in 2017... Yes, that's not too long ago. Several public requests for the district attorney's office to publicly release the case file prompted investigators to pour over the materials once again. Now, these people just want to do it for probably forensic files or some podcast, some stupid true crime podcast with two idiots. They decided to test the DNA samples using the latest forensic technology. Yes, and? Incredibly, they found a match. Oh, shit. Really? Who? Who? Michael Sumter, a convicted murderer and rapist who had died in 2001. Uh, I knew it was Michael Sumter. He was like a Sumter lived in Cambridge as a young child. Yeah. Dated a girl in Cambridge in the mid-60s and in 1967 was working on Arrow Street just a mile from Jane Britton's apartment. Uh, He was arrested and convicted of physically assaulting a woman he met at the Harvard Square MBTA station three years after Jane's murder. Really? By, but in 1975, Sumter was out of jail and raped a woman in her Boston apartment. It Man. was then that he was sent to prison for 15 to 20 years. At least he went to prison, but not till later. Then just 13 uh, months after he was paroled, Sumter died on, on um, of cancer in 2001. Well, hopefully he is in hell. After his death, his DNA profile was matched to the rape and murder of 23-year-old Ellen Rutchick in her Beacon Street apartment in 1972. Beacon Street is where uh, Cheers is. He was also Boston. connected to the 1973 rape and murder of 24-year-old Mary Lee McLean in her Mount Vernon Street apartment. Really? He was also eventually connected to a 1985 rape, which police say he committed after escaping from work release. Gosh. So he couldn't just couldn't help himself, I guess. But he was... But he raped a lot of people, but yeah. didn't murder a lot of people. Well, no, he murdered. He had those rapes and murders the first couple I told you about. So how come he's this guy's not like got a name or he's not exciting no. to people like you who love this shit? Like, why aren't you guys calling him the I don't know. Beacon Street, same street as Cheers murderer? 
Without new DNA from Sumter to verify their findings, they turned to the next closest thing, a DNA sample from his brother, who they located through services like Ancestry.com. Oh, Ancestry will help, yeah. The sample from Sumter's brother matched the original sample, ruled out 99.92% of the male population, wow. and proved within reason that Michael Sumter was in fact responsible for the rape and murder of Jane Britton. Wow. According to the Middlesex District Attorney's Office, Sumter Middlesex. was no stranger to Cambridge. We already said that he lived there as a child, yeah. worked just a mile, and was convicted of assaulting a woman in the area three years after the murder. On Beacon Street, the same street as Cheers. Yes. Sorry about that. That's okay. I accept um, your apology, and so do our listeners. So then in November 2018, Middlesex District Attorney Marion Ryan confirmed that after nearly 50 years, Britain's case was closed. Oh, November 2018, the same month that I pooped over there in that bathroom? All right, stop that. Well, you didn't give me that date, so I couldn't look it up. A century of mystery and speculation has clouded the brutal crime that shattered Jane's promising young life and our family, Britain's brother, Reverend Boyd Britton, said on a statement. The Reverend, huh? The DNA evidence match may be all we ever have as a conclusion. Learning to understand and forgive remains a challenge. So investigators say Sumter had no connection to Jane Britton, and they probably did not know each other. No, it was just like a random killing. Mm-hmm. And that's the murder of Jane Britton. Wow. Well, that... That was a ride. I can't believe we found somebody. And it's yeah. weird that he murdered somebody on Beacon Street. That's where Cheers is. And Michael Sumter is his name. And Sumner is the name of Diane's uh, fiance at the beginning of the first episode of Cheers. So so there you go. Yeah, it's real. Bing, bang, bong. Real bing, bang, and bong. January 8th, 1969 was a Wednesday. Two FBI agents, Anthony Palmasano and Edwin R. Woodruff, were shot and killed in an apartment building in southeast Washington, D.C., while trying to apprehend Billy Austin Bryant, who had robbed the Citizen Bank in nearby Oxon Hill, Maryland. Oh. Bryant was apprehended the same day, only two hours after he was placed on the FBI 10 Most Wanted Fugitives list. The short of amount of, That's the shortest amount of time between placement on the list and capture. Okay. Woodruff was the first African-American FBI agent to die in the line of duty. Uh... You said duty. Duty. And then on Thursday, January 9th, 1969, New York Jets quarterback Joe Namath mm-hmm. accepted an award from the Miami Touchdown Club three days before Super Bowl three, and he said in his after-dinner remarks to the crowd that he guaranteed mm-hmm. that his team would defeat the venerable Baltimore Colts in the World Championship game that year. I don't know if you know, but you never guarantee, like everybody's like, you never guarantee victory uh, because... It's like a jinx. Um, my mind has wandered way far away now. It's so just, Joe Namath was the quarterback know. of the Jets, and he you know guaranteed what I was about? victory. What? Were you? I was thinking yeah. about how bad um, a Tyrannosaurus Rex would be at giving a hand job. Okay, that's what you were thinking about. So yep. now I realize what you're going through when I when you're talking about murders, like. Because those are the type of things that I think about. We are going on and on about somebody being raped. Like you're just graphically talking about rape, 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 women I being raped, and here's how they get raped. And rape is great. And while you're doing no. that, I'm thinking about stuff like that because I can't handle it. Okay. But this is like a Super Bowl thing. Anyway, Joe Namath uh, guaranteed a victory, and uh, they actually won. So, boom. Boom. Uh, January 10th, 1969 was a Friday. The publishers of the Saturday Evening Post announced that the weekly magazine would cease publication after almost 148 years. Oh. Discontinuing after its February 8th issue. The Saturday Evening Post. Yep. That was a big... 150 years. Yeah, that's a long time. Long-ass time. 
And then Saturday, January 11, 1969, U.S. Army Special Forces Reserve Officer Robert Helmy used an unloaded shotgun to hijack United Airlines Flight 459 to Cuba, diverting it from its Jacksonville to Miami flight and forcing a landing in Havana. In a month with regular hijackings of U.S. flights, Helmy's case stands out because he was the first successful hijacker to be prosecuted in the United States. Immediately after he landed in Cuba, he was arrested by the Castro government and would spend 109 days in solitary confinement in a Cuban jail before being deported to Canada, which in turn would return him to American authorities on May 5th. A jury would find him not guilty of all charges on November 20th, accepting his defense of temporary insanity, making Helmy the first skyjacker of a commercial airline anywhere to be acquitted at, at a trial. Wow. There's a That's lot of skyjackers. Crazy. Remember that? So I know. And then Sunday, January 12th, and he 19... spent 109 days in a Cuban prison. Yeah, and so hopefully confinement. that hopefully you get that word out that hey, you're going to be in solitary com- confinement for 109 days if you keep doing this shit. Yeah, or something. I still wish they would have done that fake airport idea. Yeah, in I know. Miami, and yeah. they just had a fake just air- have them fly. Sunday, January 12th, 1969 was the day of the Super Bowl. The American League champion New York Jets, led by brash quarterback Joe Namath, who had guaranteed victory. Upset the NFL champion Baltimore Colts 16-7 to win Super Bowl three in Miami. Uh, this was the first one that they actually called the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. I think. The first two, they called them like in retrospect, Matt, I guess. Led Zeppelin uh, released the first Led Zeppelin album in the United States that same day. All right. And you, since we're talking about the Super Bowl, you want to guess the cost of the Super Bowl ad in oh, 1968? God. I have no idea. Fifty-five grand. Okay. It seems like a bargain. That's pretty cheap. Bargain. Fifty-five basic. grand. We can't afford not to buy one. I know it. And then on Monday, January thirteenth, nineteen sixty-nine, a woman named Vicki Jones was arrested for impersonating Aretha Franklin in concert. Was she in concert? In concert. What did she do? Get up on a stage? Her impersonation was so convincing that nobody in the audience asked for a refund. It was that good. Whoa. So she's that good. So I, I had to read this. There's an article by Jeff Maish, M-A-Y-S-H, in Smithsonian Magazine yep. uh, from July 2018. You can find that online. So Vicki Jones, I'll I'll try to, I'll just summarize it for you. Yes. The idea, the thing is, back then, before social media and before mm-hmm. everybody had tabs on everyone at all times, there were a lot of impersonations, like there were a lot of tribute artists, but then, mm-hmm. uh, uh, so kind of in the South, there was a lot of, there was like James Brown impersonators mm-hmm. and uh, Aretha Franklin and stuff, and a lot of black clubs and stuff, like cheap, like people okay. couldn't afford to yeah. see the big stars. Um, but then there started to be a lot of lying, like tickets, oh. like you could go see Aretha for $7 or something, yeah. and say, wait a minute, what? Yeah. Um, but there's no way people could verify it mm-hmm. because there's no, you know, now there's social media. Where it's, no, Aretha Franklin's in Detroit right yeah. now. That can't be her. You know what yeah. it is. So um, now Vicki Jones has a big, long story. And according to this article, which kind of sums up a whole bunch of other articles yeah. uh, on the topic, she was sort of the, this guy who was a James Brown impersonator. Mm-hmm. I can't remember his name exactly, but he kind of roped her into this. Like she was very poor mm-hmm. and had children uh, that she needed to try to support so she would leave the kids with her mom and go with this guy and she says that uh he originally roped her into touring in florida and stuff Mm -hmm. 
as herself. Like you're going to be Vicky Jones. You're just so good. Uh, yeah. That and then once he got her places, she found out that they're billing her as Aretha Franklin, and she was like, couldn't get out of it. And then he was like, held her captive and said he's gonna, you know, oh. eat, she can't leave this apart. She can't leave this hotel room. She has to eat these hamburgers. All this stuff like. That's all she can eat is hamburgers, and just feeding her hamburgers, I guess. What? Anyway, so she said she was kind of, like, held captive, and, like, she couldn't see her kids and all this stuff, and, and he would do whatever to her if she didn't get out. So she didn't said she didn't want to do it, but once she get on stage, she would just, like, get so excited, and she was so mm-hmm. good at Aretha that she would just let it go, and then she'd feel bad about it again. So they finally caught her in uh, on this day, January mm-hmm. 13th. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember exactly where it was. Somewhere in Florida. I think near... Fort Lauderdale or something? Yeah, I think it was near Sarasota or something. Um, but they finally got her. But Aretha Franklin didn't... She said, let that poor girl go. Didn't want her. So he, And then at that time, this gal had a lot of similarities with Aretha. Like, mm-hmm. Aretha was super poor. I don't know if you know that. Like, Aretha oh, yeah. had a, her first child at 12 years old. Wow. Um, <clears throat> so this lady, too, and her kids, like, she wasn't around for her kids and everything. And so... But so she... They uncovered it and they realized it wasn't her doing this guy put her up to it. And uh, some lawyer uh, somewhere saw her and was like, you know what, she's going to be big. And they actually, Aretha forgave her, didn't want to press charges. Mm-hmm. And then this guy produced some uh, record with her, like oh, had wow. her produce. And like she sold and did well and she was touring herself and making good money. Mm-hmm. Um, again, her kids were still with her, her grandparents or her mom, their mm-hmm. grandparents, when she went back to her hometown briefly, she was in town and her kids didn't even know it. She didn't know her kids weren't with her mom anymore. The mom had gotten too tired and gave the kids to her ex-husband who was an asshole and he used to beat oh, her and all this stuff. Geez. So the kids happen to see her in a restaurant. Oh. And they go in and see her and they're like, oh my God, that's mom, that's mom. And her little boys and they're like eight years old or something. And she sees them again and is like, can't believe it didn't know any of that was happening she was so heartbroken mm-hmm. and loved them so much that she was like she gave up her career oh wow it was like i just want to be with my babies mm-hmm. and just was a mom and got rid of her whole career and everything didn't care about it anymore wow yeah. i wonder how she supported herself well she made some good money then but i think she just i can't i did read she got a job doing something something i can't remember mm-hmm. uh anyway but yeah it was a it was a really Good story. So I would recommend reading that on Smithsonian Magazine by Jeff Mache. He does a good job all right. putting it all together and summarizing it. But it's like uh, it was a whirlwind of a story. Mm-hmm. It's pretty good. I didn't summarize it as eloquently as Jeff Mache. No, you did a pretty good job, baby. Jeff Mache is a bad motherfucker, though. Don't you talk bad about Jeff Mache. Monday, January 13, 1969. Scandinavian Airlines Flight 933. Plunged into the Santa Monica Bay off the coast of California, drowning 15 of the 45 people on board. Ooh. The Douglas DC 8 jet was making its approach to Los Angeles after departing from Seattle, Seattle on a flight that had originated at Copenhagen in Denmark and was nearly seven miles off course when it descended into the sea. Impacting at 7.21 p.m. local time, 30 survivors were able to evacuate on the airplane's life rafts. Yipe. That's the same day that Samsung Electronics was founded in Suwon, South Korea. Okay. Those things happen simultaneously. And then Tuesday, January 14th, 1969, an explosion aboard the aircraft carrier U.S. Enterprise near Hawaii killed 27 U.S. Navy men and injured 314 while Dave Grohl was being born. 
The accident happened during operation of an aircraft engine starter unit and the placement of a cart with four Zuni rockets too close to the exhaust port of the starter unit. The hot exhaust detonated one of the Zuni warheads, and the explosion sent shards of metal into the fuel tank of the F-4 Phantom that was being prepared for takeoff. The tank then exploded, causing a fire that ignited the other three Zuni rockets, and then causing a chain reaction that set off other bombs and rockets as burning fuel spilled from the flight deck to the hangar deck. How many people died? All while Jason Bateman was being born. Uh, Didn't say. 27. Wow. And injured 314. That's crazy. And did you know that Jason Bateman and Dave Grohl are twins? And January 16th, 1969 was a Thursday. And then, <laughs> I don't care about that day. I don't have anything. All right. Sunday, January 19th, 1969, and the third major plane crash in the U.S. in two weeks, United Air Flight 266 crashed into the Pacific Ocean shortly after takeoff from L.A., killing all 38 people on board. A minute before the 6.21 p.m. crash, the captain reported that he had an engine fire and was attempting to return the Boeing 727 to the airport. The plane plunged into the sea about a mile from the crash of SAS Flight 933 less than a week earlier. God, can you imagine trying to fly and having, like, all the these on fire. plane crashes in the news and how I don't nerve-wracking. Think I, yeah, I don't think as many, oh, of course not as many people fly, flew. Of, yeah, but still. And I think a lot less people wanted to fly. Because, yeah. I mean, think about it. Flight wasn't that old. Like, it was right. still pretty new. It like, was. I'll wait a few it years. Was, yeah. I'll wait until you got to figure it out. a new invention like at this the, point. Like, once they start taking people to the Mars and stuff, mm-hmm. I'll be like, oh, I'm going to wait a while till you get that figured out before right, I go to yeah. Mars. I'm never going to Mars. I don't care what they say. I'm going to go, but just no. after a couple trips. Uh, Monday, January 20, 1969, Richard Nixon was sworn in as the 37th president of the United States. And that will jump to Thursday, January 23, 1969, when a rare midwinter tornado killed 29 people as it passed through the predominantly black town of Hazelhurst, Mississippi, at 625 in the morning. Wow, that's that's all bizarre. Most of the victims were African American. Can you imagine? It's freezing out, and it's morning, six in the morning, and a tornado, and a tornado comes through comes in January? That doesn't yeah. happen. That's nutty. Then Saturday, January 25th, 1969. Especially in Mississippi. I in mean, Mississippi. That's not even in the Tornado Alley or anything. Uh, isn't it? Mm-mm. How do you know? Tornado Alley's like Midwest. How do you know? Mississippi's a deep south. <coughs> you gotta God, edit right. that out. I'm not editing it. I'm putting it in and I'm amplifying it. I'm amplifying it. Saturday, January 25th, 1969, on the third day of nine consecutive days of heavy rainfall in southern Cali, mudslides killed nine people in their homes. Oh, man. North of Los Angeles in a single day. The final death toll would be 95 people. God, that'd be an awful way to go, too. Including 57 rain-related traffic accidents, 18 drownings, and 15 mudslides. I mean, you just... 138 million drowned in mud. Like it gets in, you can't okay, stop you just breathing. Probably, yeah, you probably you, just you breathe it all. It. Yeah. Ugh. Mudslide seems like not that bad, but. You're like into the ice cream treat. I think I'm thinking of the shot, the mm-hmm. drink. That's what I'm saying, yeah. Uh, anyway, that's the same day that American Broadway dancer Irene Castle died. She mm-hmm. was 75. And on Sunday, January 26, 1969, Elvis Presley stepped into American Studios in Memphis, Tennessee, recording Long Black Limousine, thus beginning the recording of what would become his landmark comeback sessions for the albums From Elvis in Memphis and Back in Memphis. The sessions yielded the popular and critically acclaimed singles Suspicious Minds, In the Ghetto, and Kentucky Rain. 
Do you like those songs? I like Suspicious Minds. I guess. I'm just not an Elvis fan. Really. Sorry. And then Monday. I like his old stuff better. And then Monday, January 27, 1969, Patton Oswald was born while Anakulchandra Chakravarti, an 80-year-old Bengali Indian guru and philosopher, died. So that means they're the same person. Mm-hmm. And then Thursday, Tuesday, I mean, January 28, 1969, the largest oil spill in U.S. history up to that time, took place 5.5 miles off the coast of Santa Barbara, California, during the drilling of the ocean floor by Union Oil from its Platform A offshore rig. January 29, 1969 was a Wednesday. The Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour premiered on the CBS television network to mixed reviews. Okay. And then Thursday, January 30th, 1969, the Beatles gave their last ever public performance at what is now called rooftop. in what is now called the Rooftop Concert, yep. setting up their instruments on the roof of the London building that served as the corporate headquarters for the recording company Apple Corps. Lasting for 42 minutes. And it was freezing cold. The impromptu concert atop the five-story building at 3 Seville Row was filmed for their 1970 film Let It Be. The group opened with a few run-throughs of their soon-to-be-released single Get Back and its B-side Don't Let Me Down. After three more songs and complaints from people in nearby buildings, London police arrived and allowed John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr to perform one final song. The group closed with a song that opened the concert, their last public words being... Get back to where you once belonged. How can you, can you imagine being the police that the awesome Beatles are playing? Yeah. That the Beatles are playing on the roof nearby. Like what kind of people called the police and complained about now, that? I, I bet traffic was being obstructed. I bet like everybody was standing out in the street just watching. You know, yeah, but that would be a that. once in a lifetime thing to see. Yeah, but you know, people are assholes. Yeah, I guess. Um, yeah. Ah, shit. I can't remember what I was going to say about this. Um, oh, that reminds me. Last night I was meant to check on this. They were supposed to do, you know, because with the social distancing, everybody, venues and, and performers don't know what to do right now. They can't perform. Mm-hmm. They can't tour. So last night they were going to do a rooftop concert in Noda um, oh. on top of a bar, a game bar. There's a mm-hmm. like a video game bar. But only 32 cars can fit in the parking lot or something socially distanced. So, but they were going to live stream it too, I guess. And so with local oh. bands and stuff. So I wondered how that, I was just wondering how that went. It reminded me of this. Like yeah. the Beatles up there. Somebody have a fur coat. Because there was a thing where they didn't realize it was going to be as cold as it was, I yeah, think. And, it was and John Lennon used, it was like a woman's coat. I think it was, mm-hmm. I don't even know if it was Yoko Ono's coat or what, but it was like that big furry coat he's yeah. wearing, like yeah. was a woman's coat. Yeah. And I'll bet you after that, a lot of men wore coats like that. Because yep. it was like cool. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway. It a trend. Well, they started so many trends in the 60s. Yeah, the Beatles. Um, yep. Anyway, I should have looked up more stuff about that rooftop thing because I think there's a bunch of lore like mm-hmm. that that I didn't look up. I should. That's maybe right. I'll. Maybe the next episode I'll dial it back. But January 31st, 1969 was a Friday, last day of the month. Spiritual master and self-proclaimed God in human formed in human form named Meher Baba voluntarily went silent from July 1925 until his death on this day, 1969. Oh, wow. That's a long time to be silent. Mm-hmm. He, he communicated by means of an alphabet board or by unique hand gestures. I wonder if he talked to himself ever. He spent long periods in seclusion, during which time he often fasted. 
not fisted, fasted. Well, that's good. He also traveled widely, held public gatherings, and engaged in works of charity with lepers and the poor. That same day, the tragedy is of 16-year-old David Milgard, wrongfully convicted of a rape and murder, and of the 20-year-old victim, Gail Miller, began a couple hours after Milgard and two friends arrived in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, to visit one of his friends. Miller's body was found at 8.30. A month later, Milgard's friend told police that he suspected Milgard, a high school dropout and hippie, of the crime. For the next 22 years, David Milgard would be incarcerated in a Saskatchewan prison, given a life sentence in 1970 after his conviction until his release on April 16, 1992. Five years later, DNA testing would not only exonerate Milgard, but would identify the person who had committed the crime. Milgard would receive CDN $10,000. That's not that much. No, $10 million. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say. There's three more zeros after that. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, in Canadian dollars. In 1999, for the miscarriage of justice. $10 million. Well, I guess that would be enough. Um, well, it's a lot of your life. Yeah, that's... Gone. Trying to do the math. 69, Probably were raped in prison. Well, can you rape the willing, though? What? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I don't know why I said that. I don't know what uh, do that you know, is that a famous story, though? Do you know that guy, the Milgard thing? That was the one I was going to tell you to do if you didn't have one. Oh, I didn't know that story, no. America. Anyway, that brings us to the end of January of 1969. We're going to come back next episode in February with... Tommy James and the Shondells with Crimson and Clover. I love that song. And some more hijackings and some other stuff. But right now, that brings us to the end of January. Thank you for listening, Time Heads. We're now into 1969, dude. It's going to be crazy. There's lots of crazy. There's so much crazy coming. We got the crazy, uh, what's the uh, the guy, the crazy guy? The Manson. Manson. Yeah. And we got. We'll have to do a whole episode a, on him. A lot of people 69ing. No. You gotta what? cool it. I do. Yeah, you gotta bring it down. Time heads, hit us up at History for Jerks and let us know if you want me to cool it and tone it down or not. We gotta get out of here. I Chuck bet Barry. Brent Nelson wants me to tone it down. Yeah, he does. Fuck that he guy. He really wants you to cool it. Anyway, thanks for listening. Get out of here, Chuck Berry. Cambridge. We're so tired of hearing about. I said we're so tired of hearing about the six days When you were all alone, no watchtower, a kiss in the sky Well, I was barely a glimmer in my young daddy's eyes I said that we're so tired of hearing about the six days One more time, I said we're so tired American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Talk about pork.